Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to see everyone. Thank you for taking the time. Let us learn together today. Today we are learning about Seder in your Seder. We're trying to learn every year. We take a few ideas, some things which perhaps we can take home, we can appreciate, we can repeat, we can think about and, and, uh, and perhaps uh, let, let into ourselves. So um, this, the, I'd like to start off by, uh, by thanking a few special individuals who are, uh, who are sponsoring today's shir. Um, first, I'd like to, start, uh, to, to thank Mark Berlin. Mark is, uh, is, um, is uh, thinking about the yard side of his mother. This is the fifth yard side, which is coming up this week. Mrs. J- Judith Berlin, Yehudit Bat Eliezer, Ezra Hashem. Alimut should be a tremendous aliyah for her neshama, God willing. And uh, we should, uh, we, he should have continued, continued slacha in her zechus, Ezra Hashem. We're also, I'd also like to thank Karen and Michael Rosenblum, who are, thank, who are sponsoring today's shir. In the, um, on the yard site of Karen's father, Mr. Julius Sand, Yehuda Ben Meir, an individual who was very much a part of our community, um, and so we all very fondly and dearly remember, and uh, whose uh, Baruch Hashem, whose name continues, whose name continues in Little Judah now, and uh, and in many other ways, in the in the family. God willing, his uh, he should be looking down and getting a lot of nachas from seeing the fam- what the amazing things the family is doing and continuing to expand. Be'ezrat Hashem. And also, I'd like to take a moment to, uh, to thank Shandy and Elliot Horowitz, who are also sponsoring today. Elliot is sponsoring in memory of two of the great Torah mentors in his life, um, whose yard sites are last week and this week. So, um, Dr. Nachama Leibowitz, Mora Nachama Leibowitz from last week, and uh, Rav Aaron Kreiser from the following week, whose, uh, whose uh, effects are clearly felt and reverberates many generations down, especially in the Horowitz family. Thank you, for, thank you for being here. Thank you for, for joining us. Let's take a few thoughts to think about. The first thought I'd like to, 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 to do, we're going to meet a number of very fascinating individuals. The first individual we're taking a, a moment to, to spend time with is a, um, an individual by the name of Rav Moshe Shapiro. Rav Moshe Shapiro was one of the great Torah teachers of our time. And, uh, and he has put out a number of books which are called Shuvi Venechza. Actually, I have to thank Marjorie for sending me the first co- co- copy of Shuvi Venechza and I've got hooked and now I've got it on every single other, other moed. Is that his Talmidim took his ideas, his lectures and turned them into, and turned them into this book on different topics of the moed. It's really pretty incredible as well. Special, special shout out to Eli Zinn. Mazel Tov is just finishing sh- 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 celebrating Shavarachas for Josh just today. Mazel Tov, Ezra Hashem, we should continue to c- celebrate together. Um, so let's, let, let's, let, let's, let's take a look at, at um, Ra, uh, Rav Moshe Shapiro. Now, Rav Moshe Shapiro's essays are long. So they actually are translations of these into English. They're excellently done. But it turns out that every essay is somewhat dense. It's a lot of, lot of information. I came across last night, so I just uh, I had, had to add it in last minute because it was just uh, such a beautiful idea. It, it should be obvious to us. But here's the interesting thing. The difference between Chometz and Matzah. We're in that meridian right now. We're, we're trying to finish it all up. We're trying to start, right? We're, we're, I don't know where we're keeping all the stuff. Who's not allowed to eat where? But we're in that space between the chametz and the matzah. What is the difference between chametz and matzah? So there's many different ways of describing it. And once, some people will say time, right? But if you think about it just in terms of essential ingredients. So chametz, well, let's go to matzah first, right? first, which is, so to speak, more, we'll call it more the actual essence of the product of wheat and, wheat and water. Oh, I'm, I'm of is, is flour and water is is matzah really mean to say what, what is more germane what is actually more in the reflection of the actual ingredients is matzah what happens to chametz is you let it ferment a little bit right and then some bacteria bacteria grow 
And if you add a little bit of yeast to expedite the process, then sometimes in bread today, I don't know what, I mean, you go to the bakery, I don't know what else they're putting into it. I mean, like it's, like, it's basically dessert on steroids, you know? So, but there's all, there's all kinds of other things going on over there. That's, it, we call all adulterations of the essential product itself. So his observation is, is on, the, on the top of, uh, this is on page two, the top, the top of the left column. He says, Really, chometz is not the real taste of the essential bread. You take an external, an external, whether it's from the air, whether it's from the yeast, something else out externally, which now makes it grow bigger. It's not actually the essence of the matter itself. It now adds two things. It looks different and it tastes different to what it would be essential. And also it changes its life, its life cycle. It changes its longevity. Although chametz always tastes better than matzah, according to most, and it might be sweeter to the palate, we all know that leave the bread on the shelf for just a little bit too long, and it's done. And the more natural it is, the shorter that time period. Today, I mean, you know, I've got Dutch counting, go for a few months, I don't know what they put in there. But like uh, bread which you cook in your oven, then that, that goes very fast. Matzah, the reason why we use a matzah for an Arab is because it just doesn't go anywhere, it just is. So he says, mm-hmm. The closer to the essence we are, the greater the longevity of that substance or that issue. If we're truer to ourselves, that value is going to last longer than if it were with all the externalities and all the other, we'll call it, um, frills. The moment you move away from what you are at essence, it is in a certain sense false. It tastes good for a moment and it fleetingly disappears. Such an obvious observation. Such a simple observation about the difference between what's truer and the fact that truth lasts, that which is adulterated doesn't. And it's interesting, I just happened to be in, and uh, this is a book I did not get through in truth. It is very hard to read the whole book, but it's a fantastic book. I got through, I got a significant way through the book called Salt, A World History of Salt. And there's a lot to talk about. Oh, I found it. <laughs> not in one teaspoon. You know, and, uh, and the truth is, is that it's interesting that there's, I mean, when you read this book, basically every single war was fought over salt and, you know, like, and the, the division of countries and the Mediterranean states are all because of salt. Okay, but, but, but it is fascinating. But if you go back to, uh, to ancient Egypt, it's fascinating. Listen to this, uh, this, this observation that, that, that is made. The Egyptians were the inventors of raised bread. Did you know that? To make leavened bread, a gluten-producing grain, not barley or millet, was necessary. And about 3000 BC, the Egyptians developed wheat that could be ground and stretched into dough capable of entrapping carbon dioxide from yeast. The starting yeast was the often leftover fermented dough, sourdough. Uh-huh, this is not new, folks. It's not the latest rage. Well, which is another example of, of lactic acid fermentation. Egyptian bakers created an enormous, enormous variety of breads in different shapes, sometimes the, ambi- the addition of honey or milk or eggs. Most of these doughs, as with modern breads, were made from a base of flour, water, and a pinch of salt. Of course, that's why it's in the book. Uh, <laughs> so if you think about this for a second, this is, this is amazing. So when the Jews left Egypt, when the Hebrews left, uh, left Egypt, and they take the matzah out, 
we think, oh yes, they had to rush and the whole business, right? That's true, but it's actually an ideological revolution as well. It wasn't just about the practicalities and the fact of how fast the school bus was leaving in. What we're talking about is, is ideologically, we're, we're going back to basics. We're leaving behind the culture which has added all of this stuff to what we are. Let's just sort of whittle it down. Let's distill down to the very drop of who we are. That's what the matzah is. And that's why matzah lasts. The, the, Egypt, the Egyptian version of bread we left behind. That's what we're doing once a year is to remind ourselves, what are we? What are we? What are we, what are we at essence? We wash, wash everything else away. Okay, for idea number one, the difference between bread and, uh, and, and, and matzah, which is what we're, we're, we're aiming and aspiring to do. Idea number two, we can't go, we can't go through this pace like without thinking about Rav Chaim Kanievsky and uh, the, incredible, the incredible loss that we have suffered. So I, I was in the, the, the Swarim store this week and I could not hold myself back from getting the Derech Emunah Haggadah, which is Rav Chaim, it's not, he didn't write the Haggadah, but it's of his writings, which he wrote much of in many, many other places. And he has many, many observations. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to even stop it. It's an interesting observation which sort of captures the, the, the breadth of his perspective. So he has an interesting observation which I'd never come across beforehand and how he squares it with all who so speak halacha and machshava. Here's how it goes. He says a very beautiful thing. Um, actually, I want to stop here for a moment. I also want to, this should be a refuah shleim. I learned it should be a refuah shleim before. Okay, so it's Hashem, uh, well, it, it'll be, I, I, I'm thinking about the Rufo Shlem and Mitzvah Hashem, um, and um, it, should be, it should be good tidings. The, um, the, the Rav Chaim Kanievsky says a beautiful thing. He says um, that there is a Midrash, which I had not come across beforehand, that if you fast forward 50 days to the night of, or the day of Shavuos, we read Megillas Rus. What does Megillas Rus have to do with Pesach? Well, the truth is it has a lot to do with Pesach. Because it describes that the night, that fateful night where Rus goes into the granary and she makes the proposition to, to Boaz that he Rus, has a responsibility of marrying her, that night, in fact, says, uh, says Rashi, quoting the Medrash, was the night of Pesach. So therefore, he says the following. Um, let's take a look at the third line in the, on page 3. Lefize, that's the abbreviation. Vayochal, hainu matzomoro. What does it mean that Boaz ate that night? That means he was eating matzomoro. What does it mean vayesht? That was the Dalekosis, that was the cups of wine. And Vayitzav Liboy, and his heart was gladdened, Sha'asak Batora, who Agara, that he finished Agara. So, what is Boaz doing? Why is he lying down in the granary? That's after he finished the Lala Seder. It must have been a lie. We asked Boaz, how long was your Seder? Right, so we don't know. But nonetheless, it was later at night, and that's where he was lying down. So now that's, Adkan is the, the, what the Rokach says, what the Medrash says that he's quoting. So he says, I have a question on this, if this is in fact factually true. Why was he protecting? Why was he in the granary? He was protecting his grain. Why was he protecting his grain? There's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch, which is quoted in the Magen Avram, who says, so <laughs> why is he protecting his grains? The night happens to be a, a night of protection. There's one night a year we feel more protected than any other night, and that is the night of Pesach. So why specifically this night? Is he lying down to protect his grain? Now you see what, of course, this is, this is, this is a, in, in a certain sense, this is a telescoping, what, what Rav Chaim Kanievsky is doing. Is he's taking an observation about uh, an episode in Tanakh, and he's assuming, first of all, all the halachas are, are applying in that specific case, and... And that, that the notion of Leil Shemurim, which the Torah says, even though halachically speaking it's codified by the Magen Avram, the, the idea of Leil Shemurim is something which is clearly aware of. He answers with Tzarek Lomar, Deshchiach Hezekahu. This was a time where there was a lot of, da it was easily 
there were lots of pilferers, there were lots of thieves in society at the time. You don't, you don't rely on Neil Shemurim when it's in a, in a bad suburb. Right? That's, uh, we, don't, we don't say, oh, everything will be just fine. You know, I mean, uh, you know, East New York and it's, it's just, you know, Brownsville, I'm, <laughs> I leave my door open because it's Leil Shemurim. That situation is not, is not the way to do, go, go with things. So he says, uh, Wait a second, so how good was he? Shmira. <laughs> he wasn't doing his job then if he was worried about the folks on the outside. Rus made it the way in. So he says, Cloud, didn't even notice her. You know, the guy could have the wheelbarrow outside, taken it all and gone. So he says, uh, he says, the, It was a deterrence. It's not that he's waiting up all night. It's a deterrence. There's somebody in the building. You're going to be more careful. Rus was not looking for a deterrence. She'd already got her instructions. She was already there beforehand. So it, um, it, it all worked out. Um, so again, just a, just a fascinating observation. Here what he's doing is, he's, and this, he goes on further, further questions. Is, is to understand. First of all, idea that historically speaking, this was the Leal Shemurim. What was Boaz doing earlier that night? And he asked, what was he, how was he dealing with the granary that he did in the day? This is just now watching it over the night to Pesach. Um, how did his Pesach cleaning go? There's a lot of, a lot of questions. And, um, and the way that Rav Chaim Kanevsky, so to speak, collapses all these ideas, all the halachic ideas, all the historical ideas, all into one piece. That was, that was the way he saw it. It was all, so to speak, all the circuitry connected. Um, for us, we, we deal with little pieces here and there. I think that when, when a person reaches that stage of learning of Torah, then uh, everything, everything is connected. Everything is, uh, corroborates itself. That's, uh, that is the, the third idea. Th- idea number, idea number, is that the third? That's the second idea. Okay, the first is, 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 um, is Chametz and Matzah, Rav Moshe Shapiro. The second idea is the fateful night in the barn and understanding the context of the, that night of Rus and Boaz. The third, the third idea is the place of Hashem. I think this is a tremendously profound observation. I think especially so for those who are, are in, uh, in Avelis this year. Here's why. The, we say in the, in the Seder, Baruch HaMakom Baruch It's unusual. We don't usually say, I call, I call HaKadosh Baruch HaMakom. What does Makom literally mean? It's place, right? So we say that Hashem is the context of reality, right? So it's, it's the, all reality happens in His context rather than in Him entering into the context, right? So it's not like, you know, Hashem comes to us. Hashem is around us, right? So that's generally how we understand it. The Gemara tells us, um, and Rav Soloveitcher quotes this is on his Rishimas um, Shiurim. He says, uh, the Gemara says an interesting observation. Amarava calls Shira Yecheskel Ra Yeshaya. Yeshaya and Yecheskel were both prophets, and they both saw visions of the celestial throne chamber of God. They both saw the same. What is Yecheskel similar to? The difference between Yeshaya and Yecheskel was that Yeshaya was a Ben Krach. He was a city boy. He was grew up in the city, and so therefore when he saw the king, it was not new to him. He sees the king all the time. When it, um, Yecheskel was similar to the rural farming boy, so to speak. When the king comes to town, this is the biggest event in his life. And he, it's unbelievable. What's, what's the Gomorrah really commenting on? Like, what's the, what's the Gomorrah actually explaining? The elaboration of their vision. Good. Okay. It's sort of same it's just Excellent. Good. So there's, a, there's, there's some what's called in, 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 in Tanakh, what's called Ma'ase Merkava, the vision of the chariots. It appears twice in Tanakh. Most people think it appears once. The first is in Yechezkel, Ezekiel 1. That's where he talks about the divine throne chamber and he talks about God's throne and the different layers of angels and what he sees on the throne, the six little wings, the four wings, uh, unbelievable stuff that's going on in there, the four faces in different directions. Very hard to know what's going on there. Um, that's what Yechezkel talks about. And it's an entire chapter. Unbelievable. 
You go to Yeshayah, Perik, Perik Vav, he also talks about the divine throne chamber. When he is initiated as a, as a prophet, and Hashem says, I'm going to put something in your mouth to say to the nation of Israel, he also describes it, but in a much, so to speak, more succinct context. So the Gemara is really asking is, why is it that the vision of the chariots of Yechezkel, when, if they saw the same thing, is much longer than the vision of the chariots of Yeshaya? And the answer that the, the, the Gemara is giving essentially is, is Yeshaya was used to seeing this. So if he's used to seeing this, he doesn't need to write home too much. But Yechezkel is unbelievable, right? Every detail is, is down there. That's, that's what the Gemara is explaining. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says, but that, okay, but so is that a function? Does that mean one of them has lesser prophecy? Does that mean to say that Yeshaya, Yeshaya had a greater prophecy than, than Yechezkel? He says, no. It was when they were living. And that's what he says at the bottom of the paragraph here, in the third from the bottom line, on, or third from the bottom line on the right-hand side, del ben Yechezkel Yeshaya, Shlehem. It wasn't that they had different, you know, so to speak, you know, um, bandwidths of Nevoah. They lived different lives. Yeshaya, Isaiah lived at the times when this, the, 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 the base of was still there. There were still two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Hashem was imminent in society. That's why the apostle comes from Yeshaya. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Hashem Holy, holy, holy. God is in the whole world. That was how Yeshaya viewed it. That apostle comes from Yeshaya, which we put into Kedusha. However, on, on the contrary, Yechezkel actually was already in exile. He lived in Babylon. He received his, his prophecies on the river. He was in Babylon already. He witnessed the destruction from Babylon. Right? If you read Yechezkel, he is exiled before the destruction. He receives news of it. He actually watches the destruction from the air. Hashem takes him on a night journey above Jerusalem. It's a crazy story. Read Yechezkel Perigud. He witnesses it from afar. So therefore he says, if that's the case, he can't feel Hashem. The Jews of the time cannot feel God imminently. And that's why he says, So what is it? We have two statements in our Kedusha. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. We're actually quoting Yeshaya when the basic English is there. When Yechezkel says his version of Hashem's holiness in the world, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Kavod Hashem, the holy, the, so to speak, the honor of Hashem, where? Mim Kamoi, in his place, but his place isn't here. That's what he's essentially saying. We merge the two, you know, we say it every day. We say it multiple times a day. These two things, we're actually quoting different versions of views of God. One in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, one in the times without the Beis HaMikdash. That's what we're doing. So now let's, let's dig it further. Who uses the word Makom now? This is, the, this is what Rav Soloveitchik is commenting on. Is Yechezkel, the Jew in exile. Makom is, a, is an expression of God in exile. Why is Makom, the place of God, an expression of exile? He says, There are two different perspectives. They're both trying to describe holiness in this world. I'm so sorry. Both are describing angels who are praising God. In a certain sense, what Yechezkel is saying is that Hashem, you used to be everywhere. And now I'm seeing you receding to a place. Not everywhere. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's now in a special place. I can see there's only one space where you exist. At times of, of pain. Tragedy and faithfulness. Nonetheless, we can still sort of see that place where we hope and aspire Hashem is. And that's how we turn to God. 
Why is it hamakom? Because it's that space where God is, so to speak, receded. It's, he's, he doesn't feel as imminent in our, in our place right now. We say hamakom yachanachem, that name of God as well. And that's why he says, when is it, when is, when, who's the first person who, so to speak, relates to Hashem through hamakom is? Yaakov vinu, vayifka bamakom. When Yaakov is journeying away from Israel, when he's journeying away from the place where he feels safe, away from his family, vayifka bamakom. He encounters the place, he encounters Hashem as the place which is going to now be distant from him. He's the person who, on that way, uh, is running from his brother, running, uh, estranged from his family. He's going to have his daughter abducted from him on the way back. He's going to be uh, persecuted and, and deceived by his uncle. That's Hamakom, the reality of, of Yaakov Vinu. And in a certain sense of the Seder, Baruch Hamakom Baruch We still live that, lead, lead, that, lead that Seder where we relate to Hashem as Hamakom. The Seder is not full. The Seder is not there yet. We still say Lashana Bab Yerushalayim is still missing. That's the version. We still adopt the version of Yechezkel's view of God in the world over that of Yeshaya when we come to the Leila Seder. A very beautiful observation. It really shapes the way that we think about the world. Um, so very, just a really powerful... We usually skip over those words. We're trying to get to the four sons. But when we try to think about what the Hamakam really is, it's, every time we say Kedusha should be different now. When we think about Yechezkel and Yeshaya standing and watching God from different perspectives. Now we move on to the Chida. Again, I couldn't hold myself back. This was a Haggadah. This year I allowed myself two Haggadahs, two new Haggadahs. Okay? One is, is Rocham Kanievsky, in, um, because it's the year, uh, we, just, we just lost him. And the one is the Chida. I've had the opportunity of learning Chida because I, I, I learned his commentary on Tanakh called the Chomas Anach. The Chida is. <laughs> There's nothing short of, um, of, of flabbergasting or a, how much he wrote and how much he knew. He takes everything and he puts it all together. In fact, his agada is not one agada. It's four of his separate commentaries all merged together. I mean, it's, it's colossal it, uh, how much he has to say. So we're, we're just going to look at one or two observations that he makes. He very much lives in the realm of Ka Kabbalah and Gematria. So he, sort of, he speaks a different language to us, but, but some of the observations he has are accessible. So he has one observation that he makes, and perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll think about um, this paragraph differently. This is the paragraph of Ha Lachma Anya, something which this year we should be especially sensitive to, as, uh, as there are many people who we call Dichvin who are trying to help while we experience our Pesach this year. So he makes an observation that the word Lachma Anya poor man's bread, actually is the gematria, is the numeric value of 210, which is redu. Didn't know that, right? I did not know that. So if you do, if you do the, 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 the counting, uh, how it works, uh, you know, 38, uh, 38 41, um, uh, um, 70, 50, 10, and 1, put, put all together. So he says that is the gematria of redu, of 210. So if that's the case, he says, so, so what are we essentially saying? Let's try to sort of view this as a commentary on history. Halach ma'anya, for 210 years, we were enslaved in Egypt, right? So that's what we're essentially saying. This is the poor man's bread, the bread of affliction, the bread that we lived in that domain, that zone of 210, right? Fair? So he says, but that, that's the case, that it doesn't make sense because technically speaking, we weren't really all slaves for 210 years because for the first amount of time, um, there was really, ya Yaakov was around, and then Yosef was around, and then Yosef's brothers were around, and then, and so it, it was like a little bit of time it took before, the, before, so to speak, the final solution came into being, and, uh, and we were enslaved. So it's not really an a, 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 a intellectually honest number, 210. So why is it that we call it Lachma Anya? Why do, why do we focus on it as being the time of, um, of Golas? So he says, for a very simple reason, because our fathers, our, our patriarchs and our matriarchs, when they lived in Egypt, being away from Israel to them was still godless. Living in the diaspora was something which was painful to them. And that's why he says, we say, It may not have been that we were persecuted the whole time, 
but simply estrangement was enough of Godless enough for, for it as well. And therefore he says why this paragraph focuses on Hashata Hacha Lashana Haba Ba'ardi Yisrael. Maybe that's why it's written in Aramaic, because what we're saying is the same for us. We may live in very wonderful diasporas, but in the end of the day it ain't Israel. And that was still counting to the 210. There was something which was missing in our experience. So the 210 is talking about the whole experience. If we're sensitive enough, like our patriarchs and matriarchs were, we'd still feel that something is missing from us. That's, that, that's observation number one. Then he says, perhaps there's more to it. He says, maybe the reason why it was, it was, that, it was that there was actually 210. Take a look at the, um, <coughs> on page five, the lowest section where it says, He says, perhaps you can even argue further. The reason why we didn't get to the 430, which was the prescription, we managed to get out on a quicker, you know, good, on good behavior much earlier. So why was that? Perhaps it was because of this, you know, it was so painful, it was so difficult. Um, and because we were children to Hashem. And Hashem wanted to, as a child, as a father, didn't want us to, to, uh, to suffer so much. He wanted to take us out earlier. So he says, you know what's interesting thing about the difference between a child and perhaps a subject? One of the differences is a very fascinating conversation which is had in the Gomorrah in Baba Basra. And this has come up a number of times actually in the last week for me. Um, the Gemara Baba Basra says the following, uh, the following conversation is had between Rebecca Kiva and Tinius Rufus. Tinius Rufus was the, was the Roman governor. And ultimately, the person who won the debate was Tinius Rufus because he killed Rebecca Kiva. But Rebecca Kiva actually won the debate because we're still talking about it and his values in the argument win. Here's the argument that, uh, that Tinius Rufus made. He says, your God, you know, he, says, he, he says, why did God make poor people? Why did God make poor people? That's all the question he, he has. So Rabbi Kiva says, in order for, uh, for those who are on the benefactor side to be improved, for us to become benefactors. So he says, no, by you benefacting other people, by you giving benevolence to other people, you now deserve to, to be punished. He says, I'll explain to you what, what I mean. So Tanius Rufus says, imagine you're a king who puts a fellow into, into prison and he says, you're not worthy of, uh, you, you're going to be on a strict liquids diet, no, no food, and anybody who feeds him is dead. So you feel terrible, you feel bad, and you walk past the cell, and you go and you slip into the window through the bars a piece of bread. Right? So what will happen when the king finds out? He'll put you on the next door cell, right? How can you break my rules? This fellow needs a punishment, and now what you're doing is you're feeding him. So that's what Tanius Rufus says. God, God created poor people. And what are you doing? You're slipping in food through the bars. God wanted them to be poor. Faithfully, we're stuck as we are, right, aren't we? So Rebbe Kiva says, you have misinterpreted the situation altogether. It's the same with one detail shifted. Imagine the king got really upset with his son, put his son into jail um, without, uh, without food. And now you say, I wish I could help this, this child. And you throw the bread through the cell window. And the king finds out, what would the king do now? So the king would say, you know, I really didn't want you to feed my son, but I really did. I really did. Meaning I was punishing him, but I'm a father still. I still care about my son, even though I needed to instruct, you know, so to speak, instructive intervention was necessary. This is Rebekah, that's how the, the world operates. God creates certain situations where people are suffering. And in a certain sense, He wants us to intervene. It's not that we're stuck in a fate, that this person is as they are for the rest of eternity because of that, because we are children and God wants us to care about His children. We are going to be the, 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 the messenger of Him, essentially, even without Him asking, without His bidding. 
And it, it's really a, a discussion about fate versus destiny, choice versus, uh, versus circumstance, which Tanias Rufus and Rabbi Kiva are having. And we, we won that debate even though Rabbi Kiva was killed after this debate. But what is interesting about it is, says the Chida, that's precisely what's happening at the Seder as well. Why do we live in 210 years as opposed to 430? Why do we get the Radu rather than Nefesh? That's the Gematria of the two. He says, because we're children. And you know what? If we're children, then we have a responsibility to look after other children, which is why the rest of the paragraph is, Halach Ma'ani, we talk at the beginning, is this is the 210 years of suffering and of, uh, of, being, of being in exile. But what's the rest of the paragraph? Why? Because the only reason we got out was because we're children. If we're children, we have to look after other children. Then we have to make sure that other people are sitting at our table as well, because that's, the, that's exactly what God did to us. He made sure that we had the, the license and the ticket out. So let's make sure other people also do. That's what's being said over there. It's a sort of a historical note with a moral, a, a moral compass attached to it. That's what the Chida is, is suggesting. Very beautiful pers- uh, perspective. Okay? Idea number four, this is the key to redemption, which is us acting like God. Um, idea number f- uh, five, is that in the Nitzvah of Zanatari Tzihur of Berlin. He has a, a, a Haggadah in which is called the Imre Shefer, and he has such beautiful things to say. One very basic uh, observation, and that is, is how do we get to the point of Really, how are we able to imagine that we're leaving Egypt every, day, every year? We're so far from it. You know, even if they might make Pesach programs in the Sinai, that's, you know, we're, not, we're, not, we're not getting there. It's very, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine ourselves in, in Egypt today. So he says, because fundamentally it comes back to another psychological observation that we're supposed to make about ourselves. And here's where it comes from. Such a, such a brilliant observation. But it, it's, it, 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 I've never seen it before. It says, in the top of page 7, on the top of page 7 he says, you know what? Every person is supposed to wake up in the morning and realize that if I'm here, God wants me here. If God wants me here, the world is my oyster in a certain sense. I'm supposed to be here because there's something I'm supposed to do. And God wanted me to be part of this plan and part of the story. Think about that for a moment. There, there's so many reasons why I shouldn't be here right now. There's so many reasons. Whether, you know, as simple as, as if, if our parents didn't meet each other, if they didn't escape, you know, tragedy XYZ or calamity XYZ, they didn't get the border pass to get to country X. There's so many different steps necessary for me to be here. And if I am here, clearly God wants me to be here. Clearly, this is an extension of the Exodus process. It's only a few generations, if you, th- if you actually count the generations. We're not much over 60 generations back from the Exodus time. If you, th- if you do all the cheshbonas, all the counting, it's not so far away that the Exodus was. If we're to say for a moment, and it's such a worthwhile exercise to do the family, we're going to do it in our family, is let's write, write our own dayenus. Like, let's, uh, let's take 15 steps and explain why all the necessary steps and the links in the chain for us to be a blank sheet of paper, 15 lines. If it were not for the fact that our grandparents got that extra visa on the way out of World War II, if it weren't for the fact, how many pieces of our life is it necessary, uh, instances and moments to get to where we are now? If it weren't for those moments, we wouldn't be here right now. So, so uh, so the Nisib is saying is that if we realize our significance, the fact that we woke up this morning and we're breathing, thank God, thank God that we're breathing. An extension of that is that therefore all of these processes in history was leading up to where I am right now. It's a very, very motivating fact in life. It's the two, the two, the two live with each other. Very beautiful observation that Nassif makes in terms of our own perspective of life. Um, another idea, our sixth idea is the hidden end. This is to be found in a very beautiful agada, which is called the Shemen Hatov by Rabbi Bernard Weinberger, Rabbi Weinberger, um, who, is, uh, who is the rabbi of Rav de Tzirei Yisrael de Brooklyn Mishkunas Williamsburg. 
There we go. So, and, and so, uh, the young Israel in Williamsburg, I do not believe, is operational as much as it was in the old days, but he was a very, uh, uh, a big time in Chacham. Actually, he was, if I'm not mistaken, he was very good friends with Rav Ehrenreich, who was um, ST5, ST5 Hindus and Dell's father as well. So, just a very, a very fascinating Rav. And he, he wrote a beautiful Haggadah. It's a little small to read here. But he asks the very the, the, ba- the basic question is that you know at the at the seder I don't know how I'm not going to go around and be do a, do a poll about who takes which have uh, comment from whom, right? We grew up with, with with the kids finding it, but in many sederim it's like the kids taking it. I was like a little shocked by that that, <laughs> that business, you know you know and uh, exactly so it's uh, it's in shulchanah you 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 grab you take you. St- uh, steal is a big word, but <laughs> you steal the, ma- <laughs> the matzahs and hide it. So I don't know what the different families do, but he says, but that's a very strange thing. You know, we're all talking about lofty ideas and freedom and personality and leaving, uh, leaving our, 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 uh, our, our old self and chametz and matzah and ideas like we're talking about. And meanwhile, the children are stealing. So like, this is, <laughs> what's, what's the deal? So his observation is the following. He says a very beautiful thing. And that is that perhaps that's what we're trying to tell the children is that to bring Geula, to bring redemption to the current status quo in life, you need to do something. You need to do something. Come back to Tanias Rufus. Are we pegged in fate? Are we in our circumstance and that's the only way we are and the only way we ever will be? No. What we train our children to do is in order to find the matzah at the end, in order to find the hidden redemption, which is, which is, which is just peaking out, out from wherever it is, wherever it's hiding, you need to do something. You need to get up. You need to take action. And you need to find it. And in a certain sense, I wonder if perhaps that's the reason why it's the children. Is because sometimes, this is an observation I heard last week, and there was a great geneticist, Dr. Ratta, who said that the older we grow, the more like ourselves we become. Think about that for a second. The older we grow, the more like ourselves we become. The, the gap between predisposition and disposition shortens. And we become, so to speak, who we are predispositioned to be. And the fight is to be able to make sure that we keep making choices that move past ourselves sometimes towards our predisposition, sometimes away from our predisposition. Children have the capacity to still dream. Children have the capacity to, uh, to think, to ideate. And if anybody's ever read any of Sir Ken Robinson's books, it's a book called The Element. If you want to get a, get a shortened version, just watch his TED talk on it. But um, Sir Ken Robinson has a very interesting observation. He says, if you're to ask an average Child, Karen, you deal with this all the time. Ask an average child, you know, a four or five-year-old, what does a paperclip do? Right? They have tens and tens of functions to do. Ask an average adult, they're on average about four to six ideas. Isn't that interesting? Because what happens is we beat out creativity. We beat out, of, uh, you know, the experimentation. It's interesting that when they, when they, when they, they, they make experiments, there's a, there's a particular challenge. With a certain amount of time, with a certain amount of... Uh, of, uh, of materials, I believe it's pretzels and, uh, and marshmallows, who can bring, build the, t- t- the t- a tallest tower. And they do this with all different kinds of groups, in business settings, and school settings, and uh, you know, team buildings. They found that, that the, gr- the groups that succeed the most are, in, um, are businessmen, right? more than professionals, because they're willing to take more risks, and children, because children take more risks than adults. And so in a certain sense, what, what's happening at the end of the Seder is you're saying, you want to change the world? You want to fix the, what's, what's a broken reality, a fractured world? You've got to do something about it. That's the, that's the observation which is happening in, in the in the comment over here. So far, for, far from being a, mis, a miseducational opportunity, it's what, what, what and how we succeed. That to take us back to 1957 um, for, in, in a letter which was actually dated April 12th. 
So you can imagine, it's right, literally right now. I don't know how Pesach fell out. Uh, it's the 11th of Nisan. There we go. So it was literally a few days before Pesach, like this week. And this is a letter sent by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a very beautiful letter, and I would highly recommend everybody reads the entire letter. It's the same as, oh, there we go. It's the same dating. Thank you. Thank you, Eliezer. In the day, not the night. Um, so uh, so the, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says the following observation. I just, it's worthwhile appreciating his foresight into the Jewish experience in the diaspora right now. I, I, who of us would have ever seen this, certainly in the 1950s? We're taking a look at, this, at the second paragraph. There are various ways of asking questions and formulating the answers, depending on whether the son belongs in the category of wise, wicked, simple, or the one who knows not how to ask. While the four sons differ from one another in their reaction to the Seder service, they have one thing in common. They are all present at the Seder service. Even the so-called wicked son is there, taking an active though rebellious interest in what is going on in the Jewish life around him. This at least justifies the hope that someday also the wicked one will become wise, and all Jewish, and all Jewish children attending to the Seder will become conscientious Torah and Mrs. observing Jews. Unfortunately, there is in our time the co of confusion and obscurity one, another kind of Jewish child, the child who is conspicuous by his absence from the Seder service. The one who has no interest whatsoever in Torah, Mitzvahs, customs and laws, who is not even aware of the Seder Shal Pesach, of the exodus from Egypt and the subsequent revelation at Sinai. That's the, the, so the observation. We are so good at dealing with what is in front of us. What about what's not in front of us? This is what his observation was. And he goes on to, and he goes on to, to, to describe the attitude with which we have to these individuals. This presents a grave challenge which should command our attention long before Passover and the Seder night. For no Jewish child should be forgotten and given up. We must make every effort to save also that lost child and bring the absentee to the Seder table, determined to do so and driven by the deep sense of compassion and responsibility. We have no fear of failure. And that's really what Chabad did. That's what he said he did. If you think about it right now, where our tailor spoke yesterday at Surah Shlishis about the combined efforts of the Aguda and the, the joint distribution and Chabad, <coughs> and really working together. He, he talked about his uh, visiting the Crown Heights um, control center. Everybody's got a control center. The OU one is in Vienna. Um, the, good, the, the, the Chabad has a, have a center, call center in, in um, Crown Heights, and they have Bokhrim calling night and day, 24 hours a day, calling every number they have on a Chabad list in the Ukraine. Just making sure nobody slipped through the cracks, just to make sure that everybody's, everybody has food, everybody has a place to go. Can you imagine that? I'm saying that's, that's, that's what he's talking about. It worked, right? It worked. Whatever his letter. Now, what, a, what, a, what a visionary. You know, this is not a visionary in business, this is a visionary in souls. That's what he, that's what he was encouraging when it came to this. And, he's, and, and uh, um, in, in the last page, on page 10, just to close this second last paragraph, there is no room for hopelessness in Jewish life, and no Jew should ever be given up as a lost cause. Though the proper compassionate approach of Avis Israel, even of those in the lost generation, even of those uh, of the lost cause, the, sorry, the, the lost generation can be brought back to the love of God and the love of Torah, and not only be included in the community of the four sons, but in due course be elevated to the rank of the wise son. That's, that's it just it pushes us well beyond where we are in our comfort zones and what we deal with on a daily basis, and it links to another observation that Rabbi Riskin actually has in Nezagara in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And this is why it's so shocking. And I think we should ask ourselves where we stand in this, in this observation. This is, not in the, this is an extension of the letter of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, and to me, this is just such a shocking observation. He quotes, he quotes the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Mirav Yosef Yitzchak. Okay, so this is, uh, this is, uh, this is the, the, the uh, we'll call it, as he's called, 
the Friedrich Rebbe. Okay, so he says, he talks about the idea of the four sons actually being four generations. Think about it as a sequential four-generation description of Jewish history in America. That's his observation. Let's see how. He says the following. <clears throat> in the page 11, in the middle of the paragraph, the wild, the wild child, wise child, represents the European roots, the generation of the grandparents who came to America with beard and earlocks, dressed in the strimal capota, steeped in piety with a love of learning and a profound knowledge of Jewish tradition. The progeny, the wicked son, brought up within the American melting pot, rejected his parents' customs and ways of thought. He thought of himself as being in a new country with new ways and thinking of acting. To him, the, chair, the parents were terribly old-fashioned and a bit foolish if were not immediately adopting the new ways, which seemed more easygoing and profitable. Turning, turning his back on the glories of the Jewish tradition, this child often became successful in business but was cynical in his outlook. The third generation, the simple child, is confused. He watches his grandfather making kiddush on Friday night and his father stand by silently, perhaps resentfully impatient, to prepare for the business on Saturday morning. The memory of their, this grandfather, though strong at one time, is fading. And so the confused simple child can only ask, Mazos, what is this? Caught uh, as, as he is in the conflict between his grandfather and his father. Okay, folks, isn't this painful to read this? The fourth generation, so sad, this is, this is so sad. The child who does not know how to ask, offspring of the simple child, is the greatest tragedy of all. He was born after his great-grandparents had died. He knows only his totally assimilated grandfather, the Russia, and his religiously confused father. He does not know how to ask questions. This, our mute America, this is our mute American generation. The generation of the child who thought it was someone's birthday when she saw her great-grandmother's lighting the festival candles. The only time this child has seen candles being lit was on birthdays. She did not even know how to ask. So sad. We are now being challenged upon our great heritage to this generation, which had lost, which lost it without ever knowing what it had possessed. And then he goes on to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's point. This is the letter of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There is also the fifth generation, which is merely hinted at in the Gada. The generation is so far removed from Judaism that it does not know it is Passover. No matter what we say about the wicked child, at least he is at the Seder. The one who does not know how to ask somehow stumbled upon our Seder, even if he finds it rather incomprehensible. But the fifth generation is rapidly becoming the dominant Jewish generation in America, is not here at all. When we open the door for Eliyahu the, uh, the prophet, we must hold the door open for every Jew who has not yet come in. Perhaps the Seder night is too late to think about inviting them. That's the observation. And if you think about that, isn't that the most apt description? I think it's not just America. It was every Jewish goddess. Some goddesses helped us out a little bit by persecuting us. Because under persecution, identity is formed stronger. And when we're put into ghettos and we're labeled by others by yellow stars and special clothing, we remember who we are. But in those generations where we had very wonderful places to be, and there were a number of them throughout the courses of, of the Jewish history, as we, as we wound down the river of life in Jewish history, this is also the same true. It only takes four generations. It's a very short amount of time for this to happen. If we don't have values, if we're not, if we're not holding on, it's very hard. It's very painful to see. And that's the, this is the dominant description of the American Jew. Um, and finally, last observation, Rabbi Lamb. And this ends, this ends again on a tepid note. But in his Seder, Rabbi Lamb, there's a beautiful Haggadah. It's printed actually during his lifetime called The Royal Table. Very beautiful. Just some of his more slow, we'll call it smaller insights. It's worthwhile reading his Drashas on Pesach, which are longer perspectives, longer vistas. But this is some of his shorter insights. And he makes the following observation, which is a question. And that is, is that, you know, why is that we do his saber? We lean at the saber, we flip our chairs to the left and so on, because that's the way of kings. Where does that come from? Like, let's, let's sort of, academically speaking, where does that come from? Where's that practice from? 
What was that? The kings. The kings, the kings of? Rome. Rome. <laughs> Meaning this is Roman practice. That's when the Gomorrah is written. The mission is talking about the times and the practices of Rome and the couches they would have. And all the couches would be around and they'd be on their nice Roman couch over there with a nice round, round pillow at the end. Right? That would be how they would... Isn't that strange? Our expression of freedom is acting like a Roman. <laughs> That's a, such a bizarre um, a, a, a set of actions. And he says the following why, um, in, in, in this last page on page 14. Why retain this fossilized Roman custom when there are so many beautiful Jewish customs? Right? Jews are different ways of eating. The answer I suggest lies in irony. Why is our Seder lacking and incomplete today? Why do we not observe the Passover sacrifice which is the center of the Seder in the days of independence? Why are we today in exile? It is because the Romans of 2,000 years ago destroyed the temple. But we shall not allow the destruction to rob us of our authenticity and undo us as a people. And so today we practice the very Roman symbol of freedom, the inclining on the left side. We adopt the Roman posture of leisure. And we thereby celebrate Zeichel Mikdash, remembering everything that had occurred to the temple while they, the Romans, who ravaged the temple, are no longer in existence. So it's in a certain sense a dramatic irony. It is a satire of the Roman situation. We're missing. Our freedom is not complete. But in a certain sense, the only people who are acting like Romans are the Jews. <laughs> and if you think about it, the only people who know about ancient Egypt are Jewish children. And that's the success of our Seder, is we take all the vestiges of every goddess we've been through and we still celebrate the freedom of it, while those nations fade away and ever away into, into nothingness and textbooks. And that's where we are. A quick, a quick recap. We looked at Matzah and Maros for the eyes of Moshe Shapiro, the difference between essentiality and, and, uh, and, the, and the accoutrements which fade away. We looked at uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky's perspective of the night of Boaz at the, at the granary and how he had to take extra precautions because of it being Shriach Hezekah. Rav Soloveitchik's perspective of Amakom, the view of reality from Yechezkel's standpoint, which is the view of the diaspora, where Hashem is only in Amakom, not Mala or Kavodo. We looked at the Chidas perspective, the idea of this being a narration of being either a foreigner is part of our goddess, but also the foreigner who is saved early. And that's the responsibility for us to save others early as well. We looked at the Nsiv in his idea about Bechol Dovador is a, re a reflection of our realizing that we are, the, the import we are important because we exist. And that expresses itself through Exodus. We looked at Rav Bernard Weinberger's perspective, the Sheminatos perspective of taking the Afikoman as active, the active nature of God, of Geula, of trying to find the redemption. We looked at the Lubavitcher Rebbe's fifth child and Rav Ruskin's extension of that. The fifth child is the four generations leading up to that fifth child. And finally, the last perspective of Rabbi Lam, of taking the free symbol of freedom of the Romans when the Romans are no longer as well. A lot to think about, a lot to absorb some, some perspectives, hopefully, to take us through the Seder. Please take, please repeat, please consider, and please argue and observe and think about. It should be a beautiful Chag Kosher Vesamea.